Dean Holes. I am often asked what luxury item I carry with me, and the answer is always the same. It is the thing that I left behind. Ray Mears. I'd ridden to today's square straight after waking up, so still felt morning fuzzy as I sat on a log to settle into the woodland and sip a coffee from my flask. The ground in the hollow was covered with a carpet of leaves. Brown beech, tawny oak, orange sweet chestnut, yellow maple and emerald moss. A brilliant blue sky framed the few leaves still lingering on the branches of silver birch trees. This was likely to be one of the last days of late autumn colour, making it even more precious. Winter's onslaught was being held back by these occasional autumnal flurries, but there would not be many more golden mornings until next year. I spent a happy half hour trying to perfect an artistic photograph of a crooked oak tree in a sunlit patch of bracken, trying to get that sparkling lens flare you can conjure with a wide lens and a small aperture. I hoped the tree might be home to the two species of rare oak-munching beetles whose presence had secured this wood's status as a site of special scientific interest. The shimmering two-spotted oak buprestrid and the oak pinhole borer beetle, since you ask. Most of the photos I took today, however, were not quaint autumnal scenes, but images of burnt-out cars or the detritus of clay pigeon shooting, thousands of smashed orange clays and mounds of plastic shotgun cartridges. There were more wrecked cars than wrens in this wood, rusted and graffitied, the windows smashed, tyres and interiors burnt away abandoned by joyriders after a night's entertainment ragging around the nearby city. I got my own small thrill by jumping up onto the roof of one to snap a self-timer picture. Then I hid my bike in some trees and stepped away from the paths and the scrunched up cider cans peppered with bullet holes. I pushed through the foliage into a thicket sunk in a dip and tangled with fallen moss-covered trunks. Stringy ash saplings rushed for the sky, charging for the light. It was a literal race of life or death, for only one or two of all those young trees would survive in the long run. As with the stagnant pond from week one, I enjoyed the hidden, unkempt atmosphere of the glade. But it also saddened me that on my map a mere scrap of undisturbed woodland felt wild and expansive. Shifting baseline syndrome is the way change happens so slowly that we don't recognise our perception of normal changing. I think I look the same in the mirror each morning until one day I can't button up my jeans. We don't realise the landscape is deteriorating until it's too late. It is one of the most important concepts I learnt about all year. Some scientists believe shifting baseline syndrome is the biggest challenge in conservation today, warning that our conservation and policy efforts are becoming less effective with each generation, while we become more satisfied with our diminishing actions because our targets are weaker in terms of biodiversity and habitat variety. 300 years ago, for example, there were just 6 million people and as many as half a billion birds in England. 
Today, there are nine times more people and a third the number of wild birds. One in six birds has disappeared in my lifetime alone. So much birdsong and space would blow our unaccustomed ears and minds. It is heartbreaking when we stop to consider what a drab state of nature deprivation we exist in, but we consider it normal and therefore what should be preserved. I would love to have stood in a field in North America and watched the mile-wide flocks of migrating passenger pigeons that roared like thunder and blocked the sun for three straight days as they passed overhead. It was, perhaps, the world's most abundant bird. But the last individual of that species, named Martha, died in a zoo in 1914 with a palsy that made her tremble. And that was it. We had hunted the passenger pigeon to extinction, and none of us born since then has even missed those birds, for we live under a new normal. Near my home, there is a wood I often run through. One day, however, I found a tall metal fence blocking the path, shiny new with sharp spikes on top. I had no option but to turn around. Furious! How dare anyone block a harmless path through the trees? That patch of woodland had been stolen from me and diminished my world as a result. Now imagine a newcomer to the area. They saw me galloping heroically across the landscape and were sufficiently impressed by my unflattering lycra, sweaty red face and lumbering stride to also go for a jog through the wood. They would reach the fence and just follow it around, accepting it and still enjoying their run. Their baseline for the natural state of that woodland is lower than mine. Shifting baselines lower standards imperceptibly but relentlessly so we don't pay attention to the catastrophe of environmental degradation and loss of wild places. Baselines also complicate our relationship with land use. For example, the purpose of our national parks is to conserve and enhance their natural beauty, wildlife and cultural heritage. This sounds admirable, but their baseline assumptions sit from when they were founded in 1951. Ought we to conserve those landscapes as they were then? They already looked very different to how they had in 1551, say, or 1951 BC. We assume we have always intensively farmed our countryside as we do today. Maintaining that status quo therefore often falls under the banner of conservation, despite its many harmful impacts on nature. Asking what is the right condition for a landscape would become a regular conundrum as I explored my map. The atmosphere felt timeless in the glade where I stood, but in reality, no tree here was more than a couple of hundred years old. It was an evolving and lived-in landscape. Once upon a time, the Romans built a road and settlement just down the hill from here. But by the time they turned up with their pizzas and noisy vespers, this area had already been managed and shaped for millennia. That's continued ever since. The wood was still surrounded by a medieval embankment, originally constructed to keep out livestock and protect the wood. Over the ages, its timber has been used for construction and tools, in households and for making charcoal. Early industries, such as ironworks, 
lime kilns, potteries and brickworks were often established in woodland because of the abundance of fuel. Quarries were dug in them too, rather than losing precious agricultural ground. Hence today's overgrown quarry now covered with exploded clay pigeons. Wherever I walked on my map, I trod on ancient history and cyclical patterns of people using the land, moving on, and then nature reclaiming it and rewilding it. This actually made me feel hopeful, for if we don't plunder it, nature's powers of regeneration and renewal are astonishing. I thought I had done a decent job of exploring today's square until I came home, researched the earthwork boundary, and learned that the word contained a dean hole, something I had never even heard of and must have missed. After every outing, I will spend hours online learning about what I've seen before turning my thoughts to the next week. But on this occasion, I realised I needed to return to my square, next time with a climbing rope and a head torch. Dean holes are man-made underground caves accessed by a vertical shaft. Chalky landscapes were once riddled with them. Theories used to abound about their history, druid temples and elaborate animal traps among them. In reality, they were nothing more than tiny mines sunk to gather chalk to spread on fields as fertiliser. Digging down before excavating the chambers avoided wasting farmland and prevented the pits from filling with leaves. Dean holes were common in the Middle Ages, though some are so old that they were excavated with bone picks. Pliny described the British digging them as long ago as AD 70, and in 1225, Henry III gave anyone the right to sink a marl pit on their land. The entrance I found was a small black hole, just a few feet wide, on ground otherwise thick with leaves. I forgave myself for missing it on my first visit. Originally, the entrance for this 800-year-old dean hole was a six-metre vertical shaft, but a grate now covered it to prevent accidents. However, at some point, one of the pit's chambers had collapsed, meaning I could slither down through a slanting hole in its roof instead. I texted a friend my what three words location, in case I did not reappear and needed rescuing, lashed my rope to a tree, then leant back into learning something new. I switched on my head torch and then lowered myself hand over hand into the hole. This was more excitement than I'd imagined my map would offer within earshot of a busy motorway. I'm claustrophobic, so squeezing through the narrow gap gave me more cause for concern than I'd expect to feel in a small suburban wood. Thankfully, the tunnel opened out after a few metres into a lofty chamber with white chalk walls. It was a humbling feeling to cast my thin beam of torchlight around the pitch darkness and so much history. I looked up the vertical entrance shaft, capped with its grill. I could faintly hear traffic in the 21st century, but I felt very far from the world. I was glad my friend was awaiting a text message to confirm I got out okay. It would take a long time for anyone to find me if I keeled over in this ancient chamber. The underground excavations were larger than I'd anticipated. There were six domed chambers, each measuring about three by four metres, with the ceiling arching five metres above me. 
it had taken a ferocious amount of work to extract all that chalk with primitive tools and lighting. In my torch beam, I saw that visitors across the centuries had etched the walls with graffiti. The plastic bottles lying around testified to more recent explorers. Suddenly, my heart gave a jolt and I swept the light back to see what had caught my eye. A skull! The darkness, the bars over the entrance, my imagination leapt into overdrive. I stumbled over the rubble to look. With a mixture of relief and disappointment, I realised it was a cow's skull, rather than anything more historical or horrific. Quite how it ended up down there, I preferred not to know. I shone my torch around for a while, admiring the endeavours of those long-gone farmers and enjoying the novelty of my morning. Then, huffing and puffing and hauling on the rope, I wriggled back up through the tunnel into the daylight. I was buzzing to have discovered this Dean Hole just a few miles from my house. It was one of the most interesting things I'd seen in Britain, and yet I'd never even heard of these places before. What other surprises might be hiding on my little map?